So there's a man who set out to build a house. And it was the first house he'd ever built. So he wanted it to be a really nice house. You know, like you want it your first thing that you do. You want it to be something you can be proud of. So he said, I'm only going to buy the best building materials I can find. And so he figured, well, every house has to have a good foundation. So he went out and he found the best, most pristine, clear, beautiful foundation blocks that he could. And so he's laying his foundation and his neighbor walks by and says, are you sure you want to use those? Why don't you just use stones? And the guy says, no, 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 only the best for this house. So he finishes laying the foundation. He lays the floor, gets the walls up. And over the course of the next few weeks and months, he finishes building his little home. And he moves in. And the first night in his new home, the house collapses and falls. And everything breaks. That's because he'd used glass blocks for his foundation. And they look so pretty. And they look so clean. They have their nice sharp edges. And who would want to use stone when you have beautiful bricks made of glass that you could use instead? See, the Bible, though, it's, it's really complicated. You need a solid foundation that is more than just really pretty if you want to be able to interpret it and be able to apply it in any meaningful way. There are a lot of things out there that I hear people will say that are attributed to Scripture. For instance, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. That's nowhere even remotely close to the Bible. Or, you know, when people say, well, God will only give you what you can handle. Well, that's not true. God regularly gives you more than you can handle. It's just that he will help you through it. And so we, we end up with these, these foundation bricks that, whether we realize it or not, they're made of glass. We have these core foundational beliefs that we have where we know what that means. We know what the Bible tells us about this. We know what it should be. And we're building a house on a foundation of glass. So you can go through reading the Bible and you can do kind of like this interpretation, reading the Bible thing in layers, right? So for information, the, the probably the simplest, most surface reading thing, you can read the epistles of the New Testament. You can read through Corinthians or First and Second Timothy or, you know, what have you. You can read what Paul wrote as a letter to a church. And then you should say, well, these are the kinds of things that our church should do too. You know, it, it, it's fairly straightforward. You should be able to just take what it says and go do it. Except that Paul tells Timothy in scripture that every time you have a stomach ache, you should drink wine. And so if we take scripture at its literalist, even if it's intended as advice from someone to someone who has a, an issue with his stomach, Again, it, it, it gets complicated. Be careful that you don't grab a foundation made of glass. And if you're talking about context, you, know, you can also learn more about what the church was. What, what was the beginning of the church? What did it look like? You know, through, throughout scripture, we see this record of the way that God interacts with humanity. You know, we see how God talked to Abraham way, way, way back, before there was a Bible, before there were Ten Commandments. The way, the way God interacted with Noah, the way God interacted with the early church, the way Jesus provided proof of his resurrection by letting Thomas put his hands inside the wound in his sides, and he showed him the marks in his hands. 
And then he, he came back again, and he's like, okay, just, just to make sure that you guys know that I'm not a spirit, hand me that piece of fish. I'm going to eat the fish, and I'm going to go. You know, and so, like, we, we can see, and we can kind of infer from that, that God is not a God who opposes people who like proof. Right? Thomas gets a bad rap. He's doubting Thomas, and yet he gets sent out as a missionary, and church tradition tells us he went far east. He was one of the first to reach Southeast Asia with the gospel. This from the guy who we call Doubting Thomas. He's the guy who went farthest in his endeavors. So, or we can sometimes, we can look for understanding. We can maybe look for some history. We want to understand what was it like to be a follower of Christ in the ancient Near East, in this Roman-occupied Judea in the early church. Or we'd be like, what was it like to follow God back in the Old Testament when your neighbors all worshipped Baal or Asherah? What was it like to be Elijah and to have Jezebel looking for your head on a spike? <laughs> and then to say, hey, I have an idea. I need to prove that the Lord is sovereign. So how about you send your 500 best prophets of Baal? I'll meet them on top of a hill. We'll both build altars. We'll call down fire from heaven and we'll see whose sacrifice gets burnt first. Fun fact, at the end of that story, Elijah does not peacefully send everyone home. He apparently personally slaughters all 500 prophets of Baal. What do you do with that? <laughs> if God is a God of peace, why does Elijah slaughter 500 prophets of Baal instead of, I don't know, converting them? Recruiting them? Explaining them? Proselytizing to them? Evangelizing to them? No, no, he, he slaughters them. The Bible is complicated. I think one of the least destructive ways of reading scripture is to read it with the purpose of transformation. To read it and say, God, I need to know what kind of person you want me to be. And so I'm going to read this book that is a record of how you've spoken with everyone else throughout history. And I'm going to see what you've asked them to do so that I can know what you might be asking me to do. So long as you're careful and you don't then turn to Elijah and go slaughter 500 prophets of Baal, you're probably fine. But to do any of those things, any of those goals, we have to do some work of interpretation, right? Whether or not you, you would like to admit it, it's, it's a hard thing to admit. We're not reading the actual letter of Paul when we read Corinthians. You're reading the New Revised Standard Version if you're reading from our, our Pew Bibles. You're reading from the NIV 1984, if you go to most of Methodist churches, because they haven't updated them in like 30 years. Or you're reading from the King James Bible, if you go to your local Baptist church, likely. You're reading from the new, uh, the, what is that? The new, the net. The new English translation is, is the, book, the Bible version that I got when I was ordained. And so I've got a big old Bible with translator's notes and stuff. It looks really impressive when you carry it and you slap it down on the podium. It's like five inches thick, it's beautiful. Well, whether we want to admit it or not, you know, we're all reading translations of Scripture. We're reading what somebody said the Greek or the Hebrew meant, or in Aramaic if you're reading the second half of Daniel. So we've got these multiple Bibles with these multiple languages with multiple letters, and we're taking all those fragments and we're putting them together, and we're making one whole book, and then we're handing it off to a team of scholars who debate and argue, and then they translate it for us, and then they hand us the completed book, and then we look at it and we read it, 
And then we try and figure out who God is by reading this book that was translated for us from all these fragments of letters. The Bible is complicated. And so there are dozens of ways that we could potentially distort what it is that God is saying. I could read the, the passage about Elijah slaughtering the prophets of Baal and saying, well, clearly that means that if there are any leaders of any apostate churches in town, I should grab a sword and get to work. I would be wrong. <laughs> but I would have scripture to back me up. And it gets complicated. Because, see, this is the, the crux of the issue, and this is the thing we got to realize. Using the Bible as justification for what you're doing does not guarantee that what you're doing is good. Being able to quote a scripture passage does not guarantee that you're doing the work of God. It gets complicated. I mean, the Bible has been used to support slavery. It's been used to justify wars of conquest. It's, it's caused suffering and misery for millions. Or it's at least been used as justification for the suffering and misery of millions. So we need to be careful how we use Scripture. There's that language where it says that, you know, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. The idea then is that we can take the book and we can go and we can use it as some sort of offensive weapon to divide the soul, spirit, joints, and marrow of the people who need it to be exposed. Except that the next verse after that is talking about, well, since we have such a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses... The word of God in that passage that is a living and active, sharp, double-edged sword is Christ, not the book. It is Christ who judges the thoughts and attitudes of heart. It is Christ before whom everything is uncovered and laid bare, not before a book. And that's one of the reasons why it's so dangerous that Jesus' first miracle is making 150 gallons of really good wine. <laughs> Once everyone was already drunk. I mean, right? Like, who, who has the guts to preach on that? <laughs> who wants to be the first to say, yes, our denominational stance is that alcohol is damaging and dangerous and you should not drink. That is the best way forward, is just to abstain because it causes so much damage to relationships and people. People have died because of alcohol. It's best to leave it alone. And Jesus' first miracle is making 150 gallons of wine. It's just the Bible is complicated, right? But if we take that miracle in isolation, I, I, I made a quick list of all the different sermons I could write. All of them supported by this one miracle. I could write a sermon that says, well, drinking is always wrong, but Jesus made the wine because obeying your parents takes precedence over other rules of morality. Jesus made the wine not because it was right to make wine. It was wrong to make the wine, but he was obeying his mom and that took precedence because Jesus' humanity kind of took over there. I can support that with scripture. Or I can make the argument that drinking is always wrong, but Jesus didn't technically sin 
because he just provided the wine. It doesn't say he actually drank any. Or maybe it was just really good grape juice and they were too drunk to notice. I can support that from scripture. Or, or clearly it's okay to drink too much because Jesus provided 150 gallons of really good wine after the guests had already gotten drunk. So clearly drinking is totally okay. The son of God approves. I can make that argument from scripture. I've got scripture on my side here. Or Jesus wanted to make sure that everyone had a good time and they were provided for. And that's more important than worrying about how much you do or don't drink. It's actually about hospitality. It's supported from scripture. Or maybe I could make the argument, well, the whole thing's made up and the Bible's contradictory, so we should just move on. I can make that argument from Scripture. So every time I start prepping for a sermon, I have a thousand choices to make. Because it's not even about what passage I preach from, and then, well, clearly that teaches this. It's about what in the world could we say about this passage of Scripture and this miracle that Jesus did with these people in this time and in this culture that has something to say to those of us who live in our culture in our time that is relevant and helps us be more Christ-like and more loving. Because the Bible's complicated. And so... Which is right, though? How do you decide? If I interpret the story differently from the pastor down the street, do you come to my church because you like the way I interpret that passage, and you ignore his church because you don't like the way he interprets the passage? But one of us is probably right, or neither. How in the world do you mediate differences of interpretation in a modern world where everybody has a blog and every pastor has a podcast? I didn't actually do it, but I could have made a list, I'm sure, of 50 billion different ways that this has been written about by people with master's degrees in theology from different points of view and different perspectives. How in the world do you decide where to go from there? Does everyone grab a sword and last man standing clearly has the blessing of God? Because arguments have been handled that way before. And so the funny thing about that list of interpretations, though, is they all kind of assume the story is about drinking. What, what if it's about the cultural expectations revolving around the celebration? What if it's about Jesus' time coming and the inception of a new phase in his life and ministry? What if it's focused around the miracle of turning water to wine, foreshadowing the later miracle of the wine becoming Jesus' blood? And it's a foreshadowing of communion. So here's what I would caution you against. Anyone who says the phrase, well, the word of God clearly teaches, is selling you something. Because the word of God is only clear if you already accept a huge list of premises that go into it. If you believe the word of God is absolutely literal in all cases, and you believe that whatever Jesus did is the right thing to do, then yes, it is the right thing to do to provide more wine for a party that's already drunken. But those are assumptions. Those are, are, are assumptions of interpretation that we bring with us when we read Scripture. And we need to be careful. We need to examine our own hearts when we read Scripture to make sure that we're not just reading it so that it reinforces what we already think. My encouragement would be to let Scripture challenge you 
to read people you disagree with, listen to people you disagree with and go, do they have a point? Does that sound like God? Does that sound loving? Does that sound like it is loving God and loving neighbor? Does that sound like it's something that the creator of the world who gives all people in all places and all times dignity and are made in his image, does that sound like something he would say? Because if that litmus test were used in Nazi Germany or in slave-infested South America back in the day, then there would have been a lot of people walking out of a lot of churches and we would have all been better off. So test what I tell you. Don't trust me too much. I'm doing the best I can, but don't trust me too much. Learn to recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit. Learn to recognize when he is speaking and he is confirming things to you. Take that time when you are waiting and listen to God and say, what do I need to notice about this moment? Is Pastor Kevin off his rocker? Is he about to grab that sword and go kill about 500 prophets of Baal? Or is this something you really want us to do? So rather than leave that unspoken question answered, I do have a recommendation about the story of drinking. Um, I, I believe with our denominational stance. Having a glass of wine is not a sin. Jesus made 150 gallons of it. You are right if you tell me that it's okay if I have a glass of wine. You're not wrong. Still recommend you don't. It's broken too many lives, hurt too many people. It's just best if you don't. And I think that the wedding at Cana and Galilee, it's foreshadowing. I don't think it's about drinking. I think it's, from a literary point of view, John is the most developed gospel. It's got this signpost thing. It's got this interconnected web of things that it's constantly referencing in the book amongst itself. And if you read it from beginning to end ever, which I'd highly recommend, it'd take you probably an hour or so. It's well worth doing because you start to notice some of the patterns. And I think it is about the water being turned into wine, foreshadowing the wine being turned into blood. The idea that when all else is gone and you're about to run out and there seems like there's nothing left, Christ can take mundane things. It's grape juice. It's Welch's grape juice and white bread. It's not that special. I cut it up this morning. What's special about this table is that when we pray over it, just as water turned into wine, grape juice and bread becomes the body of Christ. And through it, we receive God's grace. If I buy a different brand of grape juice next week, it makes no difference. The bread is a little dried out, makes no difference. The stuff on the table is not the point. The God of the universe who inhabits all things, that is the point. That's why I come to church. It's because I believe that God is here.